It is the stuff of parents' nightmares. A potentially deadly infection is spreading and your child is sick. A GP prescribes an urgent course of antibiotics, but the pharmacies for miles around have run out. Cases of strep A began spiking in under 10s in September in the UK. Left untreated, it can be deadly. It's taken the lives of 16 children and caused panic among parents. A shortage of antibiotics in local pharmacies across the country has left parents asking why, in a post-pandemic world, the government is so ill-prepared for a seasonal wave of infections. Welcome to the iPodcast. I'm Molly Blackall, and in this week's episode, we will be finding out what the outbreak has revealed about our post-pandemic medical system. Later, we will discuss with Lizzie Anderson new figures that show one in six people aged 40 to 75 haven't begun saving for retirement yet, and some of them aren't worried about it. But first... The government has promised fresh supplies of antibiotics to out-of-stock pharmacies this week. But why has the UK been dealing with a shortage of medicine meant to treat a seasonal illness in the first place? Jane Merrick, our policy editor, and reporter Alana Francis have been covering this story and join us now. So, Jane, just firstly, can you give us an overview of what Strep A is and how it's treated? So yeah, strep A or group A streptococcal infection, as it's more complicatedly known, is is really common. It's normally a mild bacterial infection that circulates in the community every year, causes a sore throat, flu-like symptoms. But in some cases, it can lead to scarlet fever, which is highly contagious and causes a red rash on the skin, sort of sandpapery rash and what's known as a strawberry tongue. And it's quite common in children, which is why there's obviously been a lot of concern. But in even rarer cases, it can cause something called invasive strep A or eye gas infection. And that's where the bacteria enters a bloodstream. It causes very serious disease, which can be fatal. And the good news is that strep A and all of these complications can be treated very easily by antibiotics. So penicillin, amoxicillin, but catching it early is really crucial. And that's why people, especially parents of young children, have been told to look out for symptoms so that that can be treated quickly. As you mentioned, strep A in and of itself is very common and we see it year on year. But over the past couple of months, it's really hit the headlines. When did this first emerge as an issue? Yeah, so it it is really common and it's sort of scarlet fever. It's common. You don't really hear much about it because cases are not normally high. It can very sadly lead to deaths every year, but they're very small cases. And I think with COVID, sort of we became so gripped understandably by COVID that all other diseases didn't really have much of a focus. But it first emerged as an issue now because there have just been much more cases than normal in it than in an average year. The last high year we had was 2017-18. It looks like this year is going to be even higher than that year. And it started to emerge. We started to hear reports of a very small number of children who had sadly died from the invasive version of it. I think it was coming out via primary schools that were announcing it, and local authorities. So about a week and a half ago, the UK Health Security Agency issued an alert to parents and to GPs to basically make people aware of strep A and of scarlet fever, and also just to basically say to GPs, you need to lower the threshold for prescribing antibiotics because of these higher rates. 
So it's it's been about a week and a half, and obviously it's really concerning, but it's also important to say that it's a very small number of children who have been seriously affected. I think the latest update is that 16 children in the UK have sadly died from invasive strep A, which is obviously very sad, but it is important to say that it is still, in most cases, a very mild infection. So Alana, you've been speaking with parents about the stress of getting hold of antibiotics. Can you tell us a bit about what you've been hearing from them? Yeah, that's right. As Jane mentioned, strep A, when it gets to that serious stage, can be treated with antibiotics. But the issue for parents has been getting hold of them. One parent I spoke to, she mentioned that she'd spent three days, her and her husband, they'd even roped in other family members to call up different pharmacies, which were up to around like 12 miles away from her. But the initial prescription that she had was for a liquid form of penicillin, which is obviously what doctors usually prescribe for children who aren't able to swallow tablets. But she was advised by a colleague that maybe trying to get hold of the tablet form of the medication might be easier at this time. And so she was able to get that prescription instead. And for children who aren't able to swallow tablets, there is advice out there for how you can crush them safely so that they can be administered that way. I wonder really about the toll that this is taking on on these families who, given the kind of attention on strep A and, and as Jane mentioned, those terrible cases where children have actually lost their lives, they must be quite stressed, right, trying to access this medication? Yeah, so the parent that I spoke to Kath Beard, she's based in Birmingham. She said that she was really frustrated and angry that she wasn't able to get hold of the medication as soon as she needed to. And also, obviously, seeing the headlines about how serious strep A can get, even though we do know that most of the time it's going to be a mild infection. But given that she had been prescribed for her daughter this medication, she was really keen to get her hands on it. And seeing her daughter obviously suffering wasn't something that she was comfortable with. Jane, I think the question many listeners will be wondering is how this was able to happen. Did the government get caught out by this lack of antibiotics? Yeah, I think they did. I mean, it's it's important to say that these kind of things, you know, higher case rates of anything, infectious diseases, viruses, are monitored by the UK HSA all the time. And they would have noticed these case rates of scarlet fever going up throughout November. They would have been sending messages to the NHS England and counterparts in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland on this higher rate. So there is a question of why the NHS and why the Department of Health didn't really act sooner to be prepared for what would have been a big demand on those frontline pharmacies. The government has been saying for the last two weeks, and it said from the start, there's no problem with the supply of antibiotics, but that didn't really tell the whole story, that there's a lot of antibiotics, penicillin, in warehouses, but the problem was it wasn't being replenished quickly enough to pharmacies, and this has obviously led to the terrible case that Alana's been reporting on of, you know, I can't believe three days of trying to find medicine for your sick child. It's just horrendous. Red lights have been flashing on the dashboard of the government you have to question why the supply chain wasn't there. The supply chain is not more efficient. What was their line on all of this? Because I believe it took your reports, Jane, for them to concede that there were any kind of shortages here. My first story on this was about a week ago when there was a health minister in the Lords, Lord Markham, 
he said in a in an urgent question on on strep A in general, he said that the government was considering giving penicillin as a prophylactic, as like a preventative measure to year groups where there had been serious cases of strep A. And so I reported this story and there were from sources I was talking to, health sources, and also from pharmacists that were then going on the radio and TV, basically saying, well, I don't think we can do this because we, we don't even have enough supplies to treat the cases that we're seeing coming in that are presenting to doctors. Now, I asked the Department of Health about reports that there were basically shortages. As you probably know, it happens quite a lot with departments giving out statements. They said they're not aware of any supply shortages of amoxicillin. Now, that doesn't tell the whole story because, you know, what about shortages of penicillin? And also, of course, just saying supply shortages, well, fine, there may not be shortages in the warehouses, but there were obviously clearly shortages at the front line. And it took till Wednesday, I think about 48 hours after we started reporting on this, that the Health Secretary, Steve Barclay, started to concede that there were localised pinch points, I think he called it in some areas where they were running out. So I think it took, you know, Alana's reporting of showing the real life cases on the ground just to sort of show that what the government was saying was, you know, not so much misleading, but just not telling the full story that clearly shortages at the front line are shortages. That's where it really matters. And it was only really towards the end of last week that the chief pharmacist was issuing a letter to chemists saying that they were expediting stocks from wholesalers, that they were trying to ramp it up. I think the government was also thinking of banning the export of penicillin and antibiotics to other countries, which we obviously do regularly, just to basically shore up those supplies to make sure that our own supply chain is secured. So they didn't really tell the, the whole story from the from the start, I think. I think many people would assume that in the post-COVID era, the government might be more sensitive to outbreaks of potentially deadly diseases. Do you think that this shortage shows there's been a bit of a problem in the government's disaster planning? No, I think there are really serious concerns that the UK and in fact the world isn't prepared for the next big pandemic. And we don't really know where that's going to come from, whether it would be a version of bird flu that can transmit easily between humans, which we don't have yet. It's, it transmits very poorly between humans. It's obviously rife among birds. There could be another flu variant. There could be a totally new COVID variant that makes the vaccines completely ineffective. There's something called Virus X, which virologists sort of talk darkly of, which is a kind of completely unknown virus to the human population. I mean, to be clear, strep A is a bacteria infection. It's not a virus. It is easily treated. There's no question that we're looking at anything like a strep A pandemic. But I think what this incident does show is that actually the government was slow to respond to something that was emerging that should have been sort of flashing warning lights. And if you listen to ministers and officials, their new buzz phrase in approaching pandemic planning is pathogen agnostic, which basically refers to they want to be prepared for anything. So as you probably remember, in early 2020, there was a lot of criticism that the government was really prepared for a flu pandemic and not prepared for COVID, which could transmit without symptoms. And that really caught us off guard. And I think what they want to do is to make sure that they're ready for anything, whether it's flu and COVID. But it's got to be more than just having a, a sort of a new approach, like a new big thinking strategy. It's also got to be really granular detail about what happens when cases of a mystery disease start to flush up early in GPs or frontline and chemists. And as we know really acutely with the strikes, you know, the NHS is under so much pressure at the moment. If there is going to be this virus X or a new COVID or a new flu virus, how is the system going to cope? 
if you talk to ministers, they're just relieved that we've got through COVID. And it's almost like the next pandemic is being pushed to the margins again, that it's just not taken as seriously as it should be. You mentioned there the strain on frontline NHS services. Alana, you've been speaking with pharmacists about this rise in strep A cases and in some cases these very serious repercussions. What have they been telling you about this? This concern about the government being unprepared for this strep A situation, but also, you know, what could be the next pandemic is something that I'm definitely hearing from pharmacists who are working on the front line and parents who struggled to get antibiotics. In terms of the pharmacists, they were among the first, I think, in the medical profession to raise the alarm that there was these supply issues. And they feel quite frustrated that the government wasn't acting quickly enough to acknowledge it. For pharmacists, they have also been, you know, at risk of abuse from people who can't get hold of the medication that they really need and expect them to have. And that doesn't help when the government isn't clarifying this situation about what's going on with the supply of antibiotics. There's also the risk that if people can't get hold of medication that they need to treat things like strep A and obviously lots of other illnesses which antibiotics are prescribed for, that they can then end up in A&E, whereas otherwise, if they'd had the medication in time, they wouldn't be. And that just adds extra pressure on the emergency services, which we know are obviously dealing with the rise in winter illnesses and other conditions at this time, plus strike action, staff shortages. So yeah, there's a lot of concern about the additional pressure that it can put on the NHS if this isn't sorted or another situation like this arises. Jane, I've got a bit of a kind of thought experiment question for you now. We've seen a lot in the news about antibiotics. Firstly, as we take more of them and our body's resistance to antibiotics grows, and now to these shortages or difficulty accessing this medication, has the UK health system potentially become too dependent on antibiotics? Is there a way, an alternative way that outbreaks like this could be approached? I think what this has underlined is how brilliant antibiotics are. You know, penicillin is just the first line of defence against bacteria. It's amazing. It can cure strep A, it can prevent serious illness and death. I mean, it's just an extraordinary treatment. I guess 10, 15, 20 years ago, I think doctors were very keen to hand out antibiotics, for example, for tonsillitis, even if it was a viral tonsillitis, not a bacterial. And that has obviously led to over-prescription of antibiotics. And one of the things that people who work in public health and biosecurity are really worried about is, as you say, antimicrobial resistance too much dependency on medicines, making it harder to treat infections. That's a real concern. And and we may not be facing a strep A pandemic, but we could be facing an epidemic of AMR, antimicrobial resistance, within the next 10 years. And that's a real concern. So I don't know whether there is another way to treat them. I mean, you'll talk to sort of, you know, the basic public health messages of prevention and hand washing and so on. But the World Health Organization does have a task force dedicated to AMR, has a global action plan to tackle it. It's good that that is there, that there are try- they're trying to come up with basically more improved antibiotics to deal with this problem. But it just means that people have just got to be stricter on using it. And I think there's a real concern, especially in, um, you know, around the world, that basically this could be the, a serious health problem in, in the next decade. 
I think that decision as well to give antibiotics to children who weren't showing symptoms was something that concerned a lot of people within the medical profession because of this antimicrobial resistance. And the GP pharmacist that I spoke to who was saying that they'd run out of antibiotics in the pharmacy across the road from the GP that he works in in Kent said that doctors a lot of the time are already over-prescribing antibiotics more than they would have done previously. And when there are situations like this with strep A, when parents are very concerned, sometimes they can be pushing for that type of medication because they don't want to see their children end up ill when that might not necessarily be the right course of action for them. And also there's a lot of concern that from the GP side, they don't want to see children get sick either. So if a child is showing symptoms which could show that they have strep A, they might be more likely to prescribe antibiotics. And there isn't a in-community diagnosis test for strep A that's going on. So it's kind of just based on, you know, their judgment. For GPs, there's a lot of pressure on them at the moment. And with the symptoms of strep A, they can be very similar to other illnesses. A paediatrician that I spoke to Dr. Richard Daniels, he said that, you know, it's like finding a needle in the haystack for GPs and that it's a really difficult job, almost impossible for them at this time. Thank you both so much for joining us. Really great to get both those on the ground and right in the heart of Westminster perspective. So brilliant to speak to you both. Thanks. Thank you. Stay tuned to inews.co.uk for daily coverage of the most important news from across the country straight from our award-winning team of reporters and commentators. Reporting like this, without fear or favour, is important. An iDigital subscription gives you daily access to fair and unbiased news, whenever and wherever you are. I is for people with open minds. Our commitment to you is politics without the spin, news coverage without an axe to grind, and lively opinion so you hear all sides of the argument. Whether it's online or on the newsstand, we are committed to bringing you trusted, non-partisan news. And we have a special offer for listeners of our podcast. For more coverage of this and other news, go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and get 20% off a digital subscription to i. In return, you get uninterrupted access to all of our journalism. That includes exclusive newsletters from expert correspondents, access to our app, plus dozens of puzzles every single day. I, for Open Minds, subscribe today. How big is your pension? Well, if your retirement pot is looking a little sparse, rest assured, you are not alone. The latest government figures reveal that one in six people aged 40 to 75 haven't begun saving for retirement yet, while a quarter will be solely relying on the state pension. While many of us have always been told that we must save for a rainy day, Lizzie Anderson has been speaking to those who have decided to live life to the full and go pension free. From the self-employed to those who have worked abroad, and those who have lost loved ones long before their time, Lizzie's met the people with no pension and no regrets. Lizzie, thanks for joining us. 
How does saving for retirement tend to work in this country? Obviously, there's the state pension, which most people would get, but you still have to pay into the system to get it. You know, you don't automatically qualify for the state pension, but that really will form the basis of most people's retirement income. Currently from next year, the state pension will be about £10,600 a year. So just under £900 a month, which most people would say is not really enough to live on. So you need extra pension savings to help boost that. And so most people will save if they're employed through an employment pension scheme Some people don't like pensions at all. And so we'll buy properties, for example, and say that that's their pension, you know, income from rent is their pension. Mm. So there are many ways to save for retirement. And how many people are on a state pension in the UK? What sort of proportion, I guess, of Brits have that type of arrangement? Overall, the overwhelming majority. I mean, the state pension isn't means tested currently. Certainly there's a lot of concern that in the future... That might be the case because, you know, the state pension bill is so expensive and some people argue, well, why are people who are really rich getting it? You know, why should they qualify to receive the state pension? But at the same time, I think if you didn't give it to everyone, people would think, well, what's the point of saving if I don't save anything? You know, do do you know what I mean? What's the point? So it's a really tricky one. But yeah, the overwhelming majority will be receiving a state pension certainly now I mean to get the full amount currently you need at least 35 years of national insurance credits paying national insurance basically. And you were saying there that lots of people just don't feel that that money is enough that they're having to supplement it in some way. Pensions organisations they do a report that says that to live a comfortable style of living a person needs an income of around £11,000 a year in, in retirement that's for a single person so Currently, it's just under about 9,600, the state pension rising next year. But, you know, that's significantly smaller than 11,000. And to be honest, 11,000 is for a comfortable lifestyle is assuming that someone in retirement is mortgage free and not paying any rent, whereas actually an increasing number of people are still paying a mortgage even after they retire. And there'll be others who have never owned a home and so will be renting. So it's really important to supplement their pension. On that, lots of people are paying into additional private pensions. Can you just explain for people who might not know a lot about this, what a private pension is? I mean, it's basically just your own private savings. It's just basically another way of saying savings. The difference if your savings are in a pension product is that you can't access those savings until your mid-50s, as opposed to like if you just save into an ISA. The minute you put it into a pension, it means you're basically locking it away until your mid-50s until you can access it. But the benefit of doing that is you get tax relief on it. So that's the encouragement to save for retirement. And so a private pension is basically just a savings product, really, that happens to be in a pension wrapper. So tell us about the people that you've met who have decided to opt out of having a private pension altogether. So the first person I spoke to was a lady called Lottie Reeves, who's age 40, She trained as a teacher and then worked overseas for about 10 years. And she only recently moved back to the UK. She didn't qualify for any pension scheme while she was abroad. And now she's moved back to the UK. She's no longer a teacher. She's setting up a glamping business in Scotland. So she's very much working for herself. And so is her partner too. And then the other lady I spoke to, Sam Martin, is mid-40s and she works in PR and has been self-employed well over the last decade. And before then, she just opted out and chose not to pay into a pension. 
And now, obviously, she, she works for herself and has different clients, so doesn't have an employer contributing on her behalf. You know, I'm self-employed too, and we don't have an employer who has to pay into a pension on our behalf. It's up to us to decide how we pay into that pension. And it's difficult for your self-employed because you don't have a regular income. And sometimes you might not know how much you learn that year. And it's also just, you know, not, not a lot of effort, but, you know, it involves some organisation to decide to pay into a pension, to pick which one you're going for. I mean, I mean, actually, pensions are quite simple and straightforward, but I think some people might think they're a bit, you know, quite complicated, so don't know where to start, and so just never end up doing it. So it is overwhelmingly the self-employed people who don't have any pension savings, like Lottie and Sam, who I spoke to in my article. Other than the kind of faff of having to deal with pensions when you're self-employed, what are the other reasons that make somebody say, do you know what, I'd rather use the money elsewhere? Well, you know, obviously the cost of living at the moment, high cost of housing, saving for house deposit, cost of childcare is really high and just the general cost of living, no energy and food bills rising. It just means that there are many other areas where your money might be better spent at the moment. You know, the thought of locking away money for, you know, if you're, say, mid-30s, you'd be locking it away for at least 20 years. You know, it's quite hard because you think, well, I need the money right now you know, why am I saving for something that's well distant in the future? So that is a really tricky issue to think about. And was that what you got from Lottie and, and the people that you spoke to, this this sense that the money is really needed at the moment? Yeah, definitely. But I think I also got the sense from them that, you know, life's for enjoying. And this is certainly their perspective. You know, they enjoy travelling, treating their children. And so Sam specifically mentioned that she had a couple of family members die quite early, perhaps even before reaching the state pension age. So they spent all those years saving for retirement and never got to enjoy the money. So I think her perspective is more, well, let's make memories now and sort of maybe perhaps worry about funding retirement later on if I get there. So Lizzie, how widespread is this? How common is it for people not to be paying into a private pension, perhaps for more deliberate reasons? Most people are paying into a pension, but I think the latest government figures show that about a quarter of people aged 14 above do not have a private pension and about 16% had not yet started saving for retirement. So that's quite a high proportion, you know, about a fifth to a quarter don't have any pension or no retirement savings. As I mentioned earlier, there are different ways to save for retirement beyond a pension. Do they have any worries about what might happen when and hopefully, you know, if they do reach retirement age? I mean, that's why people put into a pension, isn't it? So that they have that peace of mind. Do they have those concerns at all? I suppose. But the thing is, people don't, when it seems a long way away, you don't really think about that or you think, oh, I'll find a solution closer to the time. I mean, certainly when I speak to lots of other self-employed people, they say, oh, I never expect to retire. I'll always be working. And I don't know how sort of flippant it is, but... Certainly that lots of people tend to do really believe that they never want to stop work. And that may be now the kind of jobs, maybe now, you know, with the rise of remote working, doing digital jobs, it maybe is a bit easier. You know, you're not sort of having to go out and do a shift elsewhere. You can just work from home. So maybe the thought is that it will be easy to pick up some work in retirement. You know, lots of people don't actually want the idea, especially if you run a business or are self-employed, the idea of like stopping work completely. You know, people often do something they love and so are quite happy to continue with the idea of doing it into retirement. I think the reality is, you know, no one really knows what position they'll be in, you know, health-wise and money-wise, but maybe that's just something people don't think about at this stage. So I wonder how this fits in with the kind of wider societal trend that we're seeing of an ageing population, while simultaneously seeing a decline in birth rate. 
Well, I mean, it's important because, you know, life expectancy is increasing. Overall, we're getting healthier, living longer. But at the same time, the birth rate is decreasing for many, many reasons. But, you know, the cost of having children, some people are delaying having children or deciding not to have so many. And this means that there are fewer taxpayers coming through the system. And so the question would be, you know, can we afford paying everyone the state pension? You know, where's the money going to come from? We need taxpayers constantly coming through the system to be able to afford pensions. For any of our listeners who who might be thinking that they're in a slightly similar position, whether consciously or sort of unintentionally, they've ended up retiring or or looking at retirement with perhaps not as much in, in the bank as they would like. Is there anything that you'd advise? Are there any lessons that you've pulled out of all of this? Well, I think the first thing to do is go onto the government website and check your state pension forecast to check that you are on track to get the full amount. You know, as I said, lots of people assume, I think, that they might get one, but some people will not get the full amount because you have to have at least 35 years of qualifying years paying into national insurance. And the minimum is 10 years. So you need to have paid some national insurance. So it's definitely worth having doing that as a first pull of call. Sometimes you can buy back years, you know, so if you've only got 33 years of qualifying years, some people might be able to buy back two years at the cost of, I think it might be around five, six hundred pounds each year. But, you know, you, you on the benefit of that is you get a top up on the state pension. You can open a pension at any age. Well, typically, most ages, you can pay into it and still benefit from tax relief. So that is something to consider as well. If you're under 40, you could save into a lifetime ISA, which is very similar to a pension. And that's more aimed at sort of self-employed people. Uh, The benefit of an ISA is income you take from it's tax-free. You can also track down old pension pots, people we've worked with in the past, employers you've worked with, just to check that you haven't forgotten about a pension. Really interesting and very important to learn more about. So thank you, Lizzie, for joining us. Thanks, Molly. Thanks for having me. For daily coverage of the most important stories, go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and grab yourself a special 20% off deal. We'd love to hear any comments or suggestions, so do drop us a line at podcast at inews.co.uk and don't forget to write us a review on your favourite podcast apps. I'm Molly Blackall. You can follow me on Twitter at Molly Blackall and on Instagram at molly.blackall. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.